HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. With more than 30 weekly podcasts, HRN has something for every food and drink lover. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Diageo Bar Academy. Learn more at diageobaracademy.com. That's D-I-A-G-E-O baracademy.com. So you don't shun the devil with your rock and roll, Lord. Knows that country music's gonna save your soul, though. Welcome back to the Speakeasy. I'm Southern Teague. And I'm Greg Benson. Hey, Greg. How are you, buddy? Well, I'm back. I'm back in the place where I theoretically live, my apartment in Brooklyn, although it hasn't really felt like that recently. Yeah, you've, <laughs> been, you uh, tra- you've been a traveling man. Oh, man. Yeah, I've been living out of my suitcase. So on, on the last show, I was catching everybody up on uh, the, the gastrointestinal experiment I did in uh, Nashville, eating a lot of hot oh, chicken, drinking a lot of cocktails at, at World Class. Uh, you know, ten, 10 out of 10, no regrets, would do again. It was for science. Yeah, Hot Chicken um, and Johnny Walker Blue. Yeah. Let's, oh, let's yeah. See, do those mix? We, we're going to find out. Uh, <laughs> they they do, but not always well. Um, uh, no, it was, it, was, it was a fantastic time. Uh, very, very lucky that I got to take that trip. But before that, I was also out in uh, the Pacific Northwest along with you. Uh, not, you know, in the same spot up there, but we both sort of wound up in that little little corner of the United States for a little while. Yeah, I was uh, out muscling uh, early in the morning right next to Haystack Rock on Cannon Beach, and you were down in Seattle, right? Isn't that where they filmed the Goonies? That is. Yeah. <laughs> For all the Goonie fans out there. Uh, yeah, yeah, it is. Uh, or at least some scenes, obviously. Yeah, just, just a little 40-year-old pop culture. Actually, you know what? I was going to make a joke about the kids, but the kids are into that all that old shit, so they probably love it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, I was up in Seattle, which is a super cool town. Uh, and I mean that in every sense of the word. Uh, it was, you know, a solid like 60 degrees and dewy the entire time. But mm-hmm. also like there's a lot of really cool stuff to, to do up there. You know, uh, the Museum of Pop Culture is a weird, weird spot. Um, you know, the they've got a lot of really great sculpture gardens. Uh, Pike Place Market is... Uh, it's a thing. I got to yeah. I got to see the outside of the original Starbucks. They have a line like it's a ride at freaking Disneyland to get inside. And I asked the guy, there, there was a very nice Starbucks employee who was, you know, keeping law and order at this thing. And I asked him, I was like, hey, how long would I, if I got in line right now, how long would it take for me to get in the store? And he goes, about 45 minutes. And I was like, Jesus, is that average? And he goes, yeah. And a very helpful woman in the front of the line just goes, oh, no, honey, it's usually a lot longer than that. Usually this line is around the block. So. 
did not see the inside of that Starbucks, but yeah. I did see the inside of a number of uh, pretty cool bars where I was there. I got to go to uh, Rob Roy. I got to go to Navy Strength and uh, a spot that might be near and dear to your heart, Souther. I think you might have even been there a couple of times in the past, Barnacle. Well, I've been to all those places you just listed. Big fan, of course, uh, of a new update at Rob Roy and my buddy Chris Elford at uh, Navy Strength. And yeah, if you went to Barnacle, I'm sure you did you get to sit in front of Lindsay? I didn't get Lindsay was not there, unfortunately. Uh, Lindsay Madison, of course, was a uh, head bartender to Mori Margo. Now she's head bartender there. Another small bar that highly focuses itself on Amari. Yeah. And I, I got to try for the first time something that I, you know, in, in this business, you should never say, I don't think this is possible. Because there's going to be some smartass out there who makes it his life's work, his or her life's work to prove you wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'd been saying for a while, you know, I have a friend who's a big fan of Malort uh, for the same reason that I think you and I are fans of Nashville hot chicken. We we like deliberately putting things that cause unpleasant sensations into our faces. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, he'd been asking me for a while if I knew of any cocktails that you could make with Malort. And I was like, honestly, I can't imagine anything that this flavor would play well with. And uh, when I was at Barnacle, I had a drink that was equal parts, uh, Pomplamoose, Italicus, Malort, and Pasubio. Uh, and yeah, and the-, Smoky, the berry, floral, bitter, grapefruit. <laughs> wow. Super weird. And the, uh, the original working title of this, this wasn't the name that was on the menu, but the original working title because of the first letters of the four ingredients was the P-I-M-P. <laughs> Big pimpin', yeah. Uh, it, it 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 was nuts, man. But always a fan, you know. You know me. I like a tiny bar. I like your tiny bar. I worked in a tiny bar before uh, in in the before times, and uh, always, you know, it's where it's where I feel very uh, emotionally and spiritually at home. Is at a tiny bar drinking weird shit. I mean, you know, everybody has their uh, their own approach, uh, Greg. So you're 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 entitled to your own. <laughs> and thank God, because it's weird. Um, but yeah, you know, and, and, uh, and you know, you know what is occasionally weird, man, I'm killing it with the segues today, but you know, it's occasionally weird, but sometimes not weird. Southern. What's that? What's gin. that, Greg? <laughs> gin. Gin can gin. get super weird sometimes. And that's what I, one of the things I like about it. And speaking of which joining us in the studio, we have, uh, Dr. Nicola Nice from Pomp and Whimsy. How are you? Hey, how are you? Doing, Great, doing really, well. really glad to have you back. You've been on the show yes. before. It's good to have you back. Your return it's guest. It's been a minute. A yeah, to the show. Thanks for having me. Um, yeah, uh, give a just a brief, uh, you know, uh, remind our listener who you are and what you're up to, and then we're going to talk about what what's sitting here on my table. Well, I guess I was introduced uh, by the, via the segue of Weird Gin. Um, <laughs> I don't know if I accept that title, but <laughs> you don't, you don't it. have to. Embrace it, Doctor. Get in it. <laughs> we'll soon find out. Um, yeah, so I am Dr. Nicola Nice, and I'm the founder and CEO of Pomp and Whimsy. Um, Pomp and Whimsy is a gin company. Um, who's on a mission to give women back their rightful place in the story of gin and the cocktail. And uh, up until about six weeks ago, we were most famous and most well-known for our cordial style of gin, uh, Pomp and Whimsy Gin Liqueur. And we're very excited to follow that up, finally, three years in the making with our dry gin, our distilled organic gin. Yeah, outstanding. And we had you on before and we talked about the gin liqueur um, and that that's your lead product. Um, talk about how maybe you made a gin liqueur before making just a, a 
just as a strong word, I guess, but before making a gin. <laughs> Yes. Um, you know, it's funny if you sort of if you sort of look at the story backwards, you might wonder why we started it that way around. But actually, if you go forward in the story, it does make sense. Um, so there were really two angles in the beginning on developing the liqueur. So first of all, was always an eye to the current consumer and current mixology and recognizing that there was a trend um, that has been in motion for a while towards lower ABV spirits on the one hand, um, also to, as you, as you know, more, more interesting and, and different uh, modifiers and liqueurs in cocktails. Um, and for me personally and my mission, wanting to really build something around a female consumer, um, specifically the female as the sort of chief entertainer and hostess in the home. And so how she is mixing and making drinks and serving things for other people and looking for a spirit that really fits into that. So talking very directly with um, our hostesses, if you like, about the ideal spirit that they were looking for and hearing from them about the desire for botanically infused spirits that they could sip straight, but then could also be the basis of a very simple, elegant, crowd-pleasing cocktail. And that's sort of what brought us into a discussion around gin as a spirit. Um, And at the same time, hearing some feedback that gin is not always everyone's cup of tea, (laughs) to mix a category there. (laughs) Um, Gin is something that as an idea sounds, actually, if you think about it, quite feminine and quite lovely, Um, you know, a neutral spirit infused with botanicals. Um, But in its basic form can taste like Christmas trees. (laughs) Um, And, you know, they're not there not being any law that gin has to taste like Christmas trees. Gin has to have a predominant flavor of juniper, but it can be across the flavor spectrum. So this was something that kind of got my creative juices flowing in terms of, okay, it sounds like there is a different gin experience that is begging to happen here. But then this was combined with a retrospective uh, deep dive into where gin came from. And this is where things got really exciting and recognizing that at one time, in fact, gin was really just a generic term for grain-based spirit. um, And gin came in many different forms. And one of the most popular forms of gin was in this sweetened, um, infused um, style called the cordial. So everything sort of came together um, when we thought about how we could bring back this lost style, but update it for modern palette, modern mixology, and this modern consumer. Um, so that was sort of the, this was the the, the impetus behind the, the cordial product, it was trying to do something innovative at the same time as bringing back something that had been lost. Everything old is new again, right? Exactly. It's not a discovery, it's a rediscovery, right? That's right, yeah. And I think especially for us, it was also from a a brand point of view, and and we can get into this as it sort of becomes more relevant even as we talk about Pomp and Whimsy as a whole and gin as a whole and not just specifically the liqueur, but the fact that at one time gin was better known as mother gin (laughs) and Mm -hmm. women had a 
you know, a, a, a cultural association with the spirit that was really interesting and intriguing to me. And of course, as we know, it's some, somewhere along the line that evolved into Mother's Ruin. And, and, you know, I grew up with that being the nickname for Jin. Mm-hmm. Um, and I really wanted to dive into, well, hang on a second. <laughs> it was originally Mother Jin. So what happened? <laughs> and how did it fall from grace? And how did women get dragged down with it? And how can we restore it? So that is really what ties into the mission of the brand as a whole. It's not just about bringing back this lost style, but it's also retelling the story of women and gin and putting them back at, in, in their rightful place. And why do you think that it, it was called Mother Gin in the first place? Was it? Do you think that it was, uh, you know, the men were out working in the fields or, or, or on, in factories or what have you, and the women were home cooking and, in, in, in fact, also then distilling or making what we would consider maybe bathtub gin or or was it was it nurturing what 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 gave it the moniker of mother well it had a few different colloquial nicknames um you know or slang names right so one was mother gin um one was also queen gin um one was ladies delight um there were uh, madam geneva so what we what we can say for sure is that there was a a female association with the spirit. And then there are several theories around how this came to be. Um, I don't think that anyone has found a place in the literature where, you know, the first use of the phrase Mother Gin was and all roads lead back to that. Um, as with any kind of slang, <laughs> you never know exactly where things come from. Um, mm-hmm. But I think we can we can theorize that the popularity of gin in the UK was really triggered um, by the royals, right? So first of all, by Queen Mary II, who was married to William of Orange, right, who played a big part in bringing Geneva to the UK, uh, Britain, and and really popularizing it. Mm-hmm. And then when she um, when she passed, and um, her sister Anne came to the throne. Um, you know, Anne's nickname um, was uh, Dram Shop. <laughs> Um, and apparently Anne used to like serve gin in her teapot (laughs) so she was a big fan of the spirit Um, did they did they mean that in a nice way um so yeah I mean I think that I think that the the legacy of Queen Anne has is one that and you know I'm not like I'm not a royal historian but you know is is one that's been cast in a few different lights and you know I think the sort of old story of her was that you know, she, she was a piss head and, you know, was not really in control of things, but actually, you know, again, I think these things get, can get twisted depending on who's telling the story and what their agenda is. Right. Um, but, um, what we do know is that, you know, gin was popular because of these two Queens, um, uh, and especially in the Royal courts. And as we see today, <laughs> even in Britain, what's popular with the Royals, uh, soon becomes popular, um, with the people around them. And so this, I think, was a big part of what set off what was, uh, you know, eventually to become the gin craze, of course, there being a lot of other social, political and economic factors that went into that. Um, yeah, absolutely. And I mean, it's, it's, as you said, it's, it's one of these things where it gets, you know, I'm, I'm sure that, you know, hell, a, a tea party where there's gin in the teapot to me sounds like a really, really good time. But, you know, I could absolutely see, uh, you know, some 
less fun, more male historians looking at that and being like, well, that's not how you run a country. Blah, 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 blah. But know? I think if you look at the, um, through, if you look, if, if you're looking back at history through the lens of today as a historian, you might think that, oh, why were they drinking tea in the teapot at, at you know, 11 in the morning for 11s or what have you. But don't, don't forget, you know, there was a time that's different than today, which is like, water was potentially bad for you. <laughs> of course you were yeah. drinking gin. Of course you were drinking beer early in the morning to get your day going. Like uh, I think we, we, we have a, uh, I've brought this up a few times uh, on the show and, and, and in life too. We have this weird association with drinking and the clock. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that that existed in, 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 a, in a pretty recent history. That wasn't a thing. You didn't, well, it's five o'clock. Some, you didn't care what time it was. It was time for a drink, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, you know, people believed um, for a very long time that juniper had gastrointestinal benefits. Maybe it sounds like you could have done with some after your your chicken meal the other day. But boy, could I have! That's what people (laughs) believed, right? And 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 they believed that if they they took some juniper spirit um, earlier on in the day, that would help them with digest some of the rich foods that were to come throughout the rest of the day. So it was very much part of the, um, the, the daily ritual. Sure. And I would, I would argue even rich foods, that sounds like modern speaking, uh, probably harsh foods, you know, mm-hmm. foods that weren't prepared well, that were over seasoned to hide that maybe they were mm-hmm. kind of rotten, you know, like, right. You right. know, and, and so the, these things were a necessary part of daily life back then. Um, well, now that we're, you know, uh, riding the horse of uh, history, let's take a quick break and hear from our sponsors. We'll come right back and keep talking to Dr. Nicola Nice about Pomp and Whimsy. And I have a bottle. Greg, you don't have one. I have a bottle sitting right here in front of me. I'm going to crack it open and we're going to taste it live on the air. So stay tuned. Hey, Greg, you know, I was a competitor at World Class for the first two years that it came to America. Uh, First year, I was in the top four. Second year, I was in the top 20. So I realized that I was going the (laughs) wrong way. So I didn't re-up. However, uh, it was one of the greatest experiences of my life. And you got to go down and view it and do some recordings for HRN. Talk about that a little. Oh, man. I mean, it was amazing. I got to see people who are really kind of at at the top of their game, really getting to to have fun with it, you know? And I mean, you know, on, on, a, on a given service, you know, you get to make a lot of drinks that, you know, you really, really like and you really have fun. And obviously, you know, we like what we do. We, we wouldn't do it because it's hard. But, you know, very rarely do you get that chance to really just, you know, have that pure creative capacity just say okay i'm gonna make this drink exactly the way i want it i'm gonna mess around with this for months and months and months until it's perfectly you know perfectly proportioned and then i'm gonna build a fun little diorama for it and (laughs) put all my put all my little glasses around this miniature scale model of san francisco not a hyperbolous example by the way someone actually did that um And it's also just really great to see, you know, that there's always new stuff to learn. I mean, you know, like one of the things that I heard a lot is like, you know, people who who did amazingly well, people who, you know, made drinks and had better technique than I will ever have in my entire life say like, yeah, you know, I was really happy with my performance and I'm really excited to, to, you know, hone my skills and come back next year. 
Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's not something you go in and dominate the first time around. It's definitely a lot of practice, trial, and error. And I think that there are resources out there that can help you get through some of that uh, from Diageo itself, Diageo Bar Academy, where you can go and take e-learning classes from past winners, uh, where you can uh, see maybe insight and intel on how they got to where they got. Uh, and it's also for any level, right? Uh, you can be a beginning bartender. Uh, you can be a seasoned professional. Hell, you can be just a, a, an average consumer who's got a high interest uh, in it. And it's all entirely free, right? Yeah, absolutely. That's one of my favorite things about it is that it's available 24-7 wherever you have a computer or mobile device. And it's all free. You know, it's very much... It is the Library of Alexandria. It's it's knowledge for the people accessible wherever, you know, you can get a decent internet signal. And I think it's really great that they also have classes for every single level of experience. So whether you're just starting out and kind of want to like learn the ropes, get a handle on the basics, or whether you've been doing this for decades and decades and decades and still want to, you know, up your game or even refresh yourself on those basics, you can do that. Any skill level, anywhere on the planet, any time of day, any budget, because it's free. I'm super into that, man. Yeah, and it's constantly updating. The, the information there is new and fresh and gorgeous all the time. And again, anytime you want to access it, 24 hours a day, uh, it's on demand and it's free, free, free. That's DiageoBarAcademy.com. D-I-A-G-E-O BarAcademy.com. Go check it out. Welcome back to the Speakeasy. Uh, I'm Greg Benson, and joining us here in the studio today, we have Dr. Nicola Nice. And we were talking a little bit before the break about uh, history and how history is often written uh, in an unkind way, particularly to women. And uh, Nicola, you uh, have a book coming out that's going to try and right some of those historical wrongs, right? Yes, um, I am working on a book. Um, it's one of those things where um, the book just needs to be written. <laughs> it's it's begging <laughs> to be written. And so um, I feel that it is my duty to write it. <laughs> um, but it's really pulling together um, at this point, the now kind of decade or more of research that I've been doing on um, the history of women and the cocktail. Um, it, it's loosely titled The Cocktail Parlor. Uh, but it's the modern hostess's guide to cocktailing at home. And the idea is that it traces different styles and genres of cocktail through the, um, through the lens of the women who have written about them um, over the last 150 plus years while providing some inspiration for people who are hosting today. And that's awesome. And I kind of love this. This trend, um, a little while ago, we had um, Mallory Amira on, who's the yes. author of uh, Girly Drinks, who was a lot of fun. And yeah. I think it's, you know, yeah. I, I, I was wondering if you could sort of weigh in on this, because I think that there was this, you know, in the in the early stages of trying to, you know, right a lot of the gendered wrongs in our industry historically, there was this whole thing of like, you know, like, oh, like, it does, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't matter, like, whether it's, you know, a man that did this, or a woman did this, like drinks are for everybody, which on a certain extent, I think is absolutely 100% true. But I also kind of enjoy that there is now Oh, an acknowledgement of like, no, like men and women are different on a biological and hormonal level. And as a result of that, like, you know, the way that they are preparing drinks, drinking drinks, experiencing drinks isn't exactly a one-to-one, a hundred percent match. And I'm really enjoying that there is kind of a, a growing body of literature that sort of 
acknowledging that and through that putting women back into you know their their rightful place in the history of cocktaildom. Uh, so I was wondering if you could comment on that. Unless, as you know, a, a a guy, I'm just totally talking out of my ass, and I got that completely wrong. And if I did, feel free to weigh in and tell me that too. Yeah, I mean, obviously, I don't I don't want to step on the the thorny issue of 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 gender and 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 gender identity. I think I would just make the. Um, more basic statement that if we try to homogenize everything, then all the ideas that come out the other side will be homogenous, right? Mm-hmm. So there is beauty in diversity and there's beauty in approaching things from different angles um, and different sensibilities and we'll get more interesting ideas coming out the other side. And I think also as much as we want to say that today – um, you know, it, it doesn't matter uh, what color you are or what gender you are. The truth is, systemically, it still does, right? There, there's, mm-hmm. you know, we had a very landmark mm-hmm. ruling in the last few days, which proves that it still very much um, is not the case that we have the same rights. Um, but more importantly, from this perspective, is history has not been documented equally. And so for those of us who are students of the history of this great thing that is the cocktail and its place in hospitality, we owe it to everyone who came before us to document it correctly. Um, And hopefully in doing so, we will inspire future generations to keep building on that. Yeah, I totally agree. In your maybe research for the book, is there anything to maybe question how we sort of gendered drinking when, you know, I think we talked a little bit off air about how there was a time when it was dangerous to drink water. So everyone drank, even children, right? Uh, you'd get up in the morning and have a, a you know, a, a heavy beer that, that would be kind of your breakfast. And of course you'd drink something with lunch to, you know, get those, uh, those rough meals down, et cetera. But where did it, where did it break off that like, no men drink and women don't or, or men drink more and women don't drink as much or men drink uh, dark and heavy and women drink light and fruitier. Where did that break happen and, and why? Well, I think this is this this is very much the thesis of Mallory's book, right? So I highly encourage anyone who is interested in understanding where specific gender identities and roles vis-a-vis alcohol came to be <laughs> to go read her book because it is a very, very wide-reaching, you know, very long, deep historical um, uh, you know, journey, if you like, and all of the ways that uh, women have always been involved in in not just the consuming of alcohol, but the making of alcohol and, you know, how that's evolved. And uh, she looks at many different cultures as well. Um, for me, I'm really more interested in um, the way women write about and inspire other women to to host. And so what I'm really looking at is the evolution of the cocktail in the home, very specifically, and the role that women as the the chief entertainers of the home have played in shaping the way that we consume and serve drinks to each other. Um, And it is a, you know, it's not it's not a um, an academic um, text by any means, it's intended to be uh, a, a light book um, that is really about in equal parts inspiring people um, to make drinks in a way that's focused on how we do things in the home as opposed to what I think can sometimes happen in cocktail books which feels a little bit like 
making bartending more accessible um, versus, um, you know, not trying to pretend to be a bartender, but actually be a host and think instead about, you know, how the cocktail fits into being a host. Right. I love it. And I'm excited to read it um, just based on, on your description of it. Um, but you mentioned in there um, making and serving alcohol. And I think that I, that's a good segue for me, Greg. This is how a segue is done. That this is the time <laughs> that I open this bottle that's sitting here teasing me. Everybody loves to hear that on the air. Uh, that's the cork popping out. Pompin' Whimsy's new gin. I'm going to pour some here. You want to talk about the gin a bit? Yes. Um, so for, First of all, for... bursting with aroma. Smells great. Juniper and grapefruit peels. You got a lot of grapefruit on the nose. Mm, yes. Mm. Good nose. Mm. Oh, I mean, yeah. even, even from opening it, I haven't tasted anything. Just, just the bottle. Wow. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm really big on, um, you know, having a 360 experience with my liquids. <laughs> so I, you know, I, I want it to, I want every touch point, how it feels in your mouth, how it smells, how it tastes, you know, to, to be, um, to, to be equally balanced. So I'm, I'm glad that you, you picked up on that too. I want the experience to start there. Um, so those anyone out there who's familiar with the liqueur um, or not, um, the best way to describe that we always say is as if Hendrix and St. Germain had a baby. So you have mm. a full flavored um, liqueur on a gin base um, that really it's kind of like a, a gin on steroids, if you like. It's it's really amping up the intensity of of the gin, and we do that two ways. So first of all, we do it by a a double infusion, if you like. So the first infusion and distillation creates the gin, but the second infusion um, then amps up the flavor uh, because we don't redistill it. So we're taking all of the same botanicals and instead letting them sit. So that, of course, intensifies the botanical profile um, into the alcohol base. But of course, the addition of sugar <laughs> is what further then intensifies that flavor. Mm. Um, so in the liqueur, um, the notes that people really pick up on are exotic fruits. So there's a lot, um, there's lychee and melon and cucumber. Um, it's, it is very floral. It's very fruity. The, the juniper element of it is sort of wrapped up in citruses and bitter citruses, especially like grapefruit and bitter orange. With the dry gin um, that you're trying now, it's not it's not technically the base of the liqueur. There are about nine botanicals that are, are common to both. Um, but instead it's a it's a gin that stands up on its own. So it's not a gin that we created to be a base of something. It's a gin to to stand alone. So we've added and rounded out the profile with some um, different botanicals, um, but I mean, rather it's really, than... it's really crisp. It's um, I'm just drinking it neat. It's not chilled. It's just just in my glass, and it's uh, I, you know I have a I have a bar that's uh, built all around absinthe. I'm picking up some like anise flavors in here, and mm -hmm. yep. and like it's kind of kind of minty. Yes, and uh, yep. and that, that again that aroma is of grapefruit, and obviously juniper is the sort of background to it all. But this is a very tasty gin, just neat in the glass. Thank you. Yeah, it's uh, it's incredibly um, soft on the palate because we use the same um, sugarcane distillate for it, um, which is just way softer than a grain-based mm. um, neutral spirit. Um, and yeah, so I whereas I would say that the the um, liqueur is more exotic fruits, and um, this is really more 
wildflowers. <laughs> so it's it's meant to make you feel reminiscent of spring flowers. So there's some um, linden flower in there. Um, there is also uh, jasmine in there as well. Um, the middle of the palette is slightly earthier or more herbal, let's say. Um, so peppermint and lavender. Mm -hmm. um, but the finish, um, there's some black pepper on the finish. There's yeah. also um, rhubarb in there, which is in the purpose of the rhubarb. What I love about rhubarb, and because you know Amara, is you, you know the beauty of this particular vegetable, actually, mm -hmm. um, is that it's very juicy at first, and then it's very woodsy and bitter afterwards. So it makes it yep. great um, as a botanical to use in the spirit. So there's rhubarb. Um, there's, yeah, as I said, there's some some black pepper in the juniper, um, and then um, a lot of grapefruit. Yes. Yeah, it is, uh, again, pretty bracing. The aroma is, is quite intriguing. Uh, even when I popped the bottle, before I even poured it into the glass, the aroma burst out of the bottle. Um, Greg, you're missing out. We gotta, you gotta I know. Yeah, I can. I can see what side Nicholas bread is buttered on over here. Good lord, <laughs> making me jealous uh, over here. Uh, we, we, we're we're going to fix this, Greg, very soon. Okay, hang it, hang tight. Then we'll make, then I we'll wait. I wait the uh, the the giant like water cooler size bottle of, uh, of <laughs> right. Pomp and Woodsy to arrive in the mail. <laughs> yeah, just pop it right under your water cooler. <laughs> um, well, this stuff is great, uh, and I'm happy. Thanks so much for sending it over. I, I saved it here on my desk to taste right here on the air, because so, I like uh, I like to be uh, I don't know transparent or whatever. But I want to get back to your book a little bit and talk. Mm -hmm. You know, a good friend of ours from the show here, uh, George, Georgette. Um, you know, she runs a, 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 a salon out of her home called Regarding Oysters, and she is like, I think I don't. She is the embodiment of the definition of the hostess. Uh, mm. at her program over there you should meet up with her and, and yes. maybe, even maybe even collaborate it's an amazing thing she does it's uh she teaches people how to open oysters and make cocktails from uh from the book that she uh wrote for her late husband sasha petrosky called regarding cocktails um and like i think that she is maybe the embodiment of, of the embodiment of what it is you're you're describing the the, the mm -hmm. way that people serve and host in their homes and i'm really excited to read your book but also you're doing a, an event at tales of the cocktail this year with uh, a right. good friend of the show, Robert Simonson. Yes, yes. Um, so I'm excited. Yeah, I'm excited to be um, doing a, a seminar with Robert. And the title of the seminar is The 10 Books from Cocktail History You Never Knew You Needed Until Now. And mm. the idea of the seminar is, um, you know, the, if, you, if you Google at you know, what are, what are the 10 most important cocktail books, um, you know, that started it all or history or what, or what have you, you will always see the same list. <laughs> we all know what books are on that list. Yeah. And the whole sort of thesis for the seminar is, but what if that were only half the story? So the idea is, let's hear, here are some authors who have written about the cocktail from the exact same time period that we're talking about um, you know, so contemporary with the likes of Jerry Thomas all the way through to Harry Craddock um, and beyond. But you may never have thought about them in the context of the law of the cocktail before. So it's, it's, it's just kind of bringing to light other places where especially women and people of color have not only written about the cocktail, but more importantly, written about it in a forum where 
they were actually hugely influential. Um, and this goes back to the discussion we had the last time I was on the show, where, you know, when we think about what matters or what, um, you know, what, what really has had influence when we talk about the cocktail is it who we as in our own inner circle say matters or is it the person you know the people who sold the most books <laughs> or were most widely read or, or most commonly uh, reproduced and so it's sort of making an argument that here are some people who you've never thought about in the context of the bar uh, but were hugely influential for in their time on people mixing drinks well, I, yeah. I would, and I, I don't think that this is, uh, well, I don't think it's easy, but I would, I would imagine that it probably wasn't that hard to find these folks who were maybe better sellers than, say, Jerry Thomas or Harry Craddock, but, but were in more homes and then, uh, then being employed. Because I think that oftentimes in our little bubble and certainly, you know, the, the cocktail world that we live in and the show, the listeners here, we're all in this, this, this world that wants to talk about being behind the bar, working the bar, being in the industry, whereas the overwhelming majority of the populace isn't. Right. And, and everyone who is in the industry also has a family and a home, <laughs> right? So, you know, as, as, as professionals, you know, what do you make when you're at home? You know, do you make some complicated drink that has, you know, six, seven, eight ingredients and, and difficult nope. techniques? Or, <laughs> you know, do you, do you reach for the thing that you've been, you know, always been drinking and know you love that has mm -hmm. two things? Um, you know, maybe it was your father's favorite drink. Um, so it's just sort of trying to pick up on some of those elements of the culture of cocktails that I think we take for granted because we're so concerned about, you know, who was the first person to name this cocktail or what is the correct way to make it based right. on, you know, <laughs> who came up with it first or yeah, based on um, what, based on the yeah. terrible tools and equipment and bad ice that they had at the time, you know, <laughs> right. yeah, we're, we're, you know. Right. And there's a place for that too, right? There is a place for that too. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I remember I was, I was listening to you talk about this on this other uh, really fantastic podcast called Back Bar that's also carried here on here. <laughs> I've heard of that one. Yeah, yeah. yeah it, was, it was really good. And I, uh, you know, it's excellent writing on that one. Um, <laughs> yeah. Amazing you segues about, also. Yeah, oh, oh, I know. Yeah, their segues are, are brilliant on that show. Really <laughs> just top of the line. Um, that's what they're known for. Um but I remember you you talking about um, some of these women that were on there, and I remember one of the the one that struck me is that she one of the the authors I believe it was Isabella Beaton, but correct me if I'm wrong, had the mm. number two best selling book in America for a, a really long stretch of years, being beaten out only by the Bible. Uh -huh. So could you give us a, a little sneak preview of, of who some of these people you might be talking about on this seminar are? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I yes, she is on the list um, for sure because you can't you can't really talk about the influence of people in the home um, at the turn of the uh, the nineteenth and twenty and twentieth centuries without talking about her and her legacy. Um, but the 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 seminar is sort of divided. It's divided into ten books, and obviously. You know, there's a story around the author and there's a story around how they wrote and what they wrote about and who, you know, who they influenced. But then also it just illustrates and expands on, you know, if you're interested in this type of author, here are some other authors that also wrote in that vein, right? So you can't talk about Isabella Beaton without also talking about Eliza Acton or Eliza Leslie or Melinda Russell or, you know, the other women who wrote 
cooking guides um, that were enormously popular um, and, you know, the staple of every household for a long time. Um, so she certainly comes up early on, as you would anticipate in the presentation. There probably would be some other people on the list who, you know, you've you've heard of um, because they they come up occasionally um, in on trade lists and conversations, but you maybe haven't heard of some of the other people that were also writing about that topic. So I'll give you an example. Um, Bertha Turner, uh, no, sorry, um, Bertha Stockbridge. Bertha Turner is also on the list. We'll talk about her in a second. Bertha Stockbridge is on the list and she wrote um, the one of the first uh, no alcohol books um, in 1920 um, when prohibition came into effect called what to drink and this is a a, a book that has been um, republished and so is quite easy to to access and available but she's not the only one who wrote about um, you know uh, what to what to drink when you're not drinking Um, and there are lots of other women who were famous um herbologists or botanists or um you know jam makers <laughs> um mm-hmm. who also wrote books on these topics uh, because it was all about you know, leaning into the pantry and leaning into other techniques that that you know our grandmothers and great great grandmothers have been using for generations to make ingredients that will make really flavorful really interesting drinks um so that is that that's she's another writer who is on the list I mentioned Bertha Turner, and the main reason why I mentioned her um, is because uh, she was an African-American writer who also wrote about um, cooking. Um, she was in, she lived in California um, in the, the early part of the last century. And this, this, this woman um, catered the Hollywood Bowl. <laughs> so she was what? enormously influential, right? Wow. And so... You know, even though she didn't write bar books, um, I kind of want to know what her punch recipe is. I don't know about you, because right. it would have been served to a lot of really influential people. Right. These 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 people had access to to the the, the tastemakers of the day, and they mm-hmm. were serving them. Right. Right. And right. then uh, you know, of course, that gets distilled into books that then get into homes, and then you know, sort of drive the zeitgeist from. From the side that's larger, again, from the home side, like that is right. the larger side. The industry is very small. There's 50 people standing in front of me, me alone at my bar, right? So the the, the side that isn't behind the bar is the much larger side. We, we don't seem to pay enough attention to it. Yeah, and it's also just recognizing that it's a two way street, right? Mm-hmm. So as I said, you know what what you, you know what what you grew up drinking or you know your family is drinking you know you might put on your menu in the bar and vice versa you know someone might come into the bar and um you know it's it's like the story of the cosmopolitan someone might come into the bar and and ask for this drink and you might make it and you might think oh my god this is this could be something this is actually really cool so Mm -hmm. it is it's very much a two-way street yeah i think uh, i think the the industry side just has the opportunity to to see it live it put it in front of people Right. And, and we have the megaphone too. I mean, right. that's what I mean. Yeah. Again, I'm standing there, I'm shouting at 50 people, right? Whereas you may just be talking to your family or your neighbors. But if you've got a if you've got a way to, you know, put it into a compendium or a book and get it printed up and get it, you know, printed dozens and dozens and hundreds and thousands of times and sell sell almost as much as the Bible. <laughs> yeah. Right. You're onto something. 
I think there was one of the one of the books that I love um, about hosting um, from the 30s has a, a fun little quote in it, and I'm probably going to butcher it, but it says something about you know if you want to spread the spread news, there's three ways to do it. Or one is a telephone, two is a telegram, and three is tell a woman. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, that's brilliant. Uh, uh, well, we are, you know, waiting uh, impatiently. I think to get to get your book in our hands. When do you think that'll be? Is there a, is there a pub date or? We I'm, still, I'm we hoping. Still yeah, we're we're still, you know, we're actively um, pitching it right now, um, and you know, obviously, I need to finish writing the thing, uh, as you <laughs> Step know. One. <laughs> Step one, finish the book. <laughs> um, so I'm I I would really like uh, for spring next year. Um, I mean, I I that's what I'll be what I'll be pushing for, but I will absolutely keep you posted, and I would love for you to to read an advanced copy of it. Um, yeah, well, well, my my only request is that you send me my copy before Souther's. <laughs> yes. All right. Uh, yeah. I'll do that. <laughs> um, well, if people wanted to uh, keep in touch with the you know the the writing process and all the other awesome stuff that you've got going on at at Pomp and Whimsy and uh, your tail seminar, where uh, can they get in touch with you online? So, of course, you can um, follow Pomp and Whimsy on all of our social channels. Um, at Pomp and Whimsy is our handle across all our platforms. Please do go to our website because it's more than just a, a brand or a product website. That is where right now I store all of my research and thinking and insight. So um, we have a, a page on our website called the library. Um, and in there, you'll not only find a link to the bibliography, um, which is the source of inspiration, not just for the book, but for the talk with Robert, the tales and so on. And we have links now to all of the books. So you can go and read them for yourself. Mm -hmm. um, it's publicly available. Um, it's, we're continuously incredible. adding to it, of course. It's a, it will never be a finished project. Um, but even if you're not into the, the, the library side of things, you'll find some great inspiration um, for all of your hosting needs today um, on bringing some of the tips and tricks to life. Um, and you can find me on um, on Instagram and, and LinkedIn, Nicola Nice. And I always love connecting with people. That's fantastic. Um, yeah, I'm really well, excited. Hey, was, I'm really excited that yeah. these books are available online to just go and read. I'm going to try and dive into as many of them as I can before Tales comes. I'm definitely, definitely, definitely coming to your seminar. Amazing. I can't wait to see you there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I can't wait to be back in New Orleans just in general. Right. For a <laughs> right. cocktail for the first time in two years. And yeah, I'm uh, I'm really uh, very, very excited to get down there this year. So more more than more than in the past, to be honest. Absolutely. Yeah. It's time. Yeah. It's time to get back to get back to work. Um, well, on that note, uh, I guess that's it for this episode of the Speakeasy here on Heritage Radio Network. Uh, please uh, check out many more shows just like this one uh, by clicking uh, by going to heritageradionetwork.org. In there, you'll find a donate button. Click on that thing and give to the station to keep this show and other shows uh, pumping out great content like this. Uh, once again, thanks again to Dr. Nicola Nice from Pomp and Whimsy. Uh, thanks for sending me some gin and not Greg, um, <laughs> but he's here in Brooklyn. If I, we, we could share. Come on over, Greg. Um, uh, uh, thanks, buddy. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, uh, thanks again, everybody. Thanks for your time, doctor. Uh, and we'll we'll talk to you. We'll talk to you soon. Cheers, everybody. Right. Cheers. Cheers. So you don't shun the devil with your. The Speakeasy is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network. Food and drink radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org/slash/subscribe.
It's gonna get